0: This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit with your host, Pat McMahon. Well, once again, hi, and uh, this particular broadcast uh, is being done uh, on Easter, on uh, Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week. Uh, And uh, if you happen to catch it somewhere else at some other time, Well, that's okay, too, because the nice thing about this kind of show is that The God Show is broadcast on Sunday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific time for the first time, and then it is on in perpetuity, whether you like it or not. And if you like it, of course, you can tell the family that this time I had an author named Jason Porterfield on and still do. He's made his home in places abandoned by society from Canada's poorest neighborhood to the slums of Indonesia. His bio continues that his passion is to cultivate God's shalom wherever it's painfully absent and to help churches embrace their peacekeeping vocation, which is really what this hour is about. Jason holds a Master's in Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary and now lives in his riskiest location yet, next door his, to his in-laws. <laughs> and Jason, where specifically do you and your in-laws live next door to one another? Yeah,
1: we're down in Houston, Texas now.
0: And well, well, what a dramatic change of pace that is. I mean, considering where you were educated and then where you traveled, and you wind up with a book, The Fight Like Jesus book, which is subtitled How Jesus Waged Peace Throughout Holy Week. So we certainly acknowledge the fact that it's timely and very important when we're talking about waging peace. As we embark, Jason, on Holy Week, and violence and war still surrounds us. Do you really believe that peace is a, is a reality?
1: I believe it can be a reality uh, here and now. And in fact, I think that's part of what it means to be a resurrection people. Uh, you know, the early church, they would say, they said that we, the church, seek to cultivate now the expectation of the future promised to us by the crucified one. Uh, that's a wordy way of saying that, that if if in, in, in heaven or in God's kingdom, there's supposed meant to be peace, then we want to seek to embody that here and now, uh, you know, so model on a small scale, the kind of peace we seek to cultivate on a grand scale.
0: I'm sure that someone who has lived a life, that seems to be a life of optimism like you have, that you still have some difficulties, even an Irishman like me, having problems with the belief that we will ever see an extended period of time anywhere in the world where we can say we're all experiencing peace together. Difficult to imagine wouldn't you say
1: definitely and i i don't want to uh dismiss the the very real suffering going on you know that i saw living in in canada's poorest urban neighborhood or in the slums of of jakarta you know the first slum that we lived in was actually uh bulldozed down and everyone was evicted because Mm. a wealthy uh wealthy gentleman, citizen of Jakarta, paid money to get the land that wasn't his in order to put a shopping mall there. And so everyone was evicted. So, you know, it's not that I am uh, in denial or naive about the suffering going on in the world around us. And yes, ultimately, you know, the full consummation of God's kingdom is yet to come, but we get to see glimpses of it in the here and now, I believe.
0: I wonder if within your travels and your experiences and your writing if you've come to a conclusion why so many practice cruelty on others
1: yeah that's a tough question um it's certainly what we see throughout history church history even um and i I think some of our interpretations of events, even during Holy Week, you know, for example, the Temple Cleansing that that takes place on Monday of Holy Week, uh, the vast majority of of interpretations uh, of that event have have depicted Jesus as being violent. You know, like it, in my book, I talk about how the standard reference work that you consult when you want to look up, you know, the uh, it's called world painting index. So if you want to look at the history of art of a particular event and you look up the temple cleansing, there's not a single painting listed that does not depict Jesus whipping people. They all do. But I think what that shows, it, it, that says more about our human human tendency to create God in our own image, one of uh, people who seek violence and vengeance instead of in God's image, which we see most clearly in Jesus, one who came to earth, uh, Advancing his mission with nonviolence and with mercy.
0: And at the same time, Jason Porterfield, even though we so clearly are able to see examples of cruelty now and throughout history, we also see, at least what appears to be, an almost equal amount of kindness, uh, sensitivity, Uh People going out of their way. When I read uh, your your background in Indonesia, uh, I was reminded my visit there a couple of weeks after that massive tsunami that took millions of lives. Yeah, and uh, and I remember being struck with the astounding amount of care that was being provided even that short a time with bodies in the streets, even that short a time after the tsunami, um, by service organizations, not just the international organizations like the Red Cross and church organizations, but small groups of people who simply dropped everything wherever they were in the world and went to tiny villages in Indonesia to see what they could do. You've seen that same kind of kindness, haven't you?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, um, about two years later, 2007, I went to Banda Aceh where the tsunami hit very hard. Um, and, uh, Servants, the missions group that I had joined. Uh, Servants is an international network of of Christian communities who all feel called to live and minister among the urban poor. And historically, that was in some of the slums of Asia's megacities. But after that tsunami happened, they felt called to start a, a team to help with rebuilding there, up there in Banda Aceh. Uh, and like you mentioned, uh, it wasn't just in that big city, but also in the surrounding villages. And in fact, that's what servants, where they felt like the most need was, was in some of the surrounding coastal villages.
0: Talk to us as you do in the book, fight like Jesus. Talk to a, talk to us about Jesus and his Holy Week. Sure. Yeah, you know. The inspiration for this book came
1: actually when I was living in Canada's poorest urban neighborhood. It's a section of Vancouver. So this beautiful city, uh, mountains. You know, I like to talk about how you can get sushi for as cheap as McDonald's. I mean, it's like heaven's on heaven on earth. You know, um, but but they had this really. Uh, poor neighborhood that's just about four by eight city blocks and uh, servants were starting a new community there. And so I I helped with uh, join that community. So it was actually New Year's Day, 2007. It's easy to remember, you know, start of a new year and a new chapter in my life. And I moved into this neighborhood that even though it's small in size on any given night, there's 5,000 people struggling with drug addictions, 1200 people experiencing homelessness and over 900 women trapped in prostitution. So that was about the extent of my homework before I moved to there. I knew about those statistics. But I was shocked when just three weeks after my arrival, the jury trial began in a nearby courthouse for Robert Pickton, the man we would all soon learn was Canada's deadliest serial killer. Mm-hmm. So for over the previous decade, he would periodically drive into the downtown east side, pick up one of the women engaged in prostitution, take her back to his farm and kill her. And by the time of his arrest, as he later confessed to an undercover cop posing as a cellmate, he had butchered and fed to his pigs the bodies of 49 women, just one shy of his goal. And so needless to say, my my neighbors were scared, they were uh, distraught, and, and they were angry. You know, why had the police been so slow to listen to their cries for help? Surely if, if Picton's victims had been prominent women from the, from the center of society, he never would have been able to kill so many people. And so I moved to the downtown east side thinking of myself as a peacemaker. That is to say, I, I, I believed God was asking me to contend for the flourishing of this beautiful yet broken neighborhood. But it, it didn't take long before my neighborhood's brokenness broke me. And so one day I I dragged myself to church with what felt like my last ounce of energy, and I plopped down in the pew, and it turned out to be Palm Sunday, like you already said, the first day of Holy Week. And as many churches do, this church turned the day into a joyous occasion. So, you know, many of the scenes you all, your listeners will be familiar with, children parading through the sanctuary, waving palm branches, everyone chanting Hosanna, we all sang upbeat hymns. And I was just in no mood to participate. So I sat in the pew, and I remember just uh, crying out to God in prayer and saying, God, I, I believe you're still in the resurrection business. I, I believe you still breathe new life into dying communities. So I beg you, teach me how to be a peacemaker. And Pat, this was, this was one of those rare instances where, at least for me, it was it's rare, where the answer to my prayer came very fast. So soon after the, the pastor just uh, got up to preach and I just wasn't in any mood to listen to his feel good message. So I decided, Hey, I'll open up the gospels and find one of their accounts of Palm Sunday and read it. So that's what I did. I randomly chose Luke's gospel. And that's when I noticed something that's forever changed my life. I mean, it's taken years to, to unpack the implications of that discovery, which is <laughs> the fruit of that being this book. But as I sat in that pew all those years ago, I noticed, you see, Luke tells us that as Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, or what I might call his not so triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jerusalem, shalom, the city whose name means peace, Mm -hmm. we read that the crowds were shouting cheers, but Jesus was shedding tears. I had never noticed that before. Maybe it was because my emotions finally matched Jesus's grief instead of the crowd's glee on that day. I don't know. And thankfully, we don't have to guess uh, or speculate about the cause of Jesus' sorrow, because Luke tells us when, that when he could remain silent no more, he cried aloud for all to hear, if only you knew, on this of all days, the things that make for peace.
0: You, so, you I- continue to repeat that lament throughout the book. Why? Why?
1: Well, it's because I've come to believe that it is the interpretive key to everything Jesus does throughout his final days. I mean, think about it. The scriptures only describe Jesus weeping one other time, and that's at Lazarus's, at his death, mourning with others who are mourning before he raises Lazarus. But this time, only Jesus is is crying. And and so, you know, the passion with which he spoke this lament, I think, reveals the depths of his concern And so what we know from this lament is that at the start of Holy Week, more than anything else, the thing that Jesus had on his mind was that he longed for people to know how he makes peace. Now, I think, you know, one of the reasons I used to brush past this lament was because I thought I knew what it was alluding to. You know, sure, Jesus' original listeners didn't know the things that make for peace, but we have the benefit of of you know 2020 vision in hindsight, right? The answer is obvious. It's the cross, the old rugged cross. That's how Jesus makes peace. I still believe that answer is true. I mean it's wonderfully true, foundationally true, but it's not the whole truth. When Jesus spoke of things in the plural that make for peace, he revealed that his peacemaking operation would be multifaceted in nature. And so what I assert in the book is that Jesus with, you know, each day Jesus contended for our peace and each day of Holy Week, Jesus sought to correct the misguided methods that we use to make and maintain peace.
0: Yet, while we take a look at something that is as dramatic and as violent as Ukraine and some of the savagery that's going on in different parts of the world. And some of the some of the examples of violence, extreme violence, such as the one that just happened in Sacramento. In Sacramento, California. I wonder if you can look back historically at the wars within wars within wars, and honestly answer the question jason have we improved at all when it comes to all of us living in peace at some time with one another
1: yeah great question you know ultimately as christians i believe we're called to be faithful to the way of jesus uh, above and beyond being effective, but that doesn't mean that when Jesus said, calls us to embrace his methods of making peace, that it won't be effective. And in fact, uh, two scholars, uh, Chenoweth and, and Stefan, they have a book, Why Civil Resistance Works. And they did a statistical analysis looking at the historical record of all conflicts from 1900 to 2006. And they found that campaigns of nonviolent resistance were more than twice as effective as their violent counterparts in achieving their stated goals. So this is something we don't normally think about, right? You know, I think uh, someone once said to a man who only has a hammer, everything he encounters begins to look like a nail. Mm. And when we spend Mm. billions of dollars on military budgets, it's the only option we can envision for how to go about bringing peace that those same authors that I I do want to point out, you know, they looked also at the historical record of anti-occupational struggles. So that's like what's going on in Ukraine right now. Right. And admittedly, when they surveyed the historical record for that, they did find that civilian led nonviolent resistance was equally as effective. So not twice as effective as using armed resistance. Both were successful about a third of the time. Uh, That's it. So more often than not, it failed. But in their same research, they found that uh, even if it failed, or even if it succeeded, sorry, armed resistance always resulted in a much higher loss of human life and destruction to infrastructure, and we're seeing that in Ukraine right now. Um, and you know, since you bring up Ukraine, I, I would just say, you know, um, so back in 2015, the the Kiev International Institute of Sociology they actually conducted a representative a representative national survey, uh, and they asked the question of Ukrainians for the first time: What's your preference for resistance if? A foreign armed invasion and occupation of our country was to occur and this was 2015 so i'm sure everyone was picturing russia you know the capture of crimea and the donbass regions had just happened and the most uh the the highest percentage of response was for civilian-led nonviolent defense and that's because ukraine has a history of effective nonviolent resistance something that doesn't get into the news a lot um and so In my mind, you know, Putin's, his his greatest strength in the war right now is his military might. You know, I mean, with 6,000 nuclear warheads at his fingertips, he's effectively sidelined NATO from getting directly involved militarily. But Putin also has a great weakness, one that we heard a lot about early on in the conflict, and that's that he lacks significant support for the war among his own people. And what little support he has is based on a lie a lie that requires ever-increasing amounts of energy to keep, to keep the truth suppressed. There's a flip side, though. Ukraine's greatest weakness is their military is no match against Russia. And despite having significant global support, no allies dared to participate directly in the fighting for fear of sparking World War III, right? But the people of Ukraine also have a great strength, and that's their passion and their unity and their willingness to die to protect their homeland. And my concern is that when Ukrainians violently resist Russian forces, they're in effect trying to overcome Putin's greatest strength with their greatest weakness. And in fact, such armed resistance, when when Ukrainian leaders speak of Russian troops as evil or the enemy, it actually benefits Putin because it helps him galvanize support for the war within Russia and thus overcome his primary weakness. And so, you know, I just think, man, if only... Ukrainians could resist Russia's military invasion in a way that targets Russia's greatest weakness and utilizes Ukraine's greatest strength. And the good news, I believe, is that there is a way, and it's the way of active nonviolent resistance that Jesus embodied during Holy Week. And, I, you know, I don't know if all of Ukraine would embrace this approach, but I I would hope, and there are glimpses and examples coming out of, of Christians and church leaders and grandmothers and grandfathers engaging in this courageous, bold, nonviolent resistance.
0: Well, Pope Francis actually, uh, just a few days ago, uh, said that he would consider going to Ukraine uh, if it would do any good and was taking a, uh, a, a very strict Uh, position uh, in opposition to uh, the cruelties that have been going on uh, now for the last few weeks. Um, Do you think that church leaders can have any influence at all?
1: I do. Um, And in fact, um, about two weeks ago, I actually had a dream, and I'm not saying this means from God, but I think when you immerse yourself in, in devising creative, nonviolent approaches to, to resolving conflict. You just find yourself thinking about creative ways in which we can, can do just that. And so a couple of weeks ago, I had a dream in which uh, Pope Francis actually, and other church leaders met in Kyiv and they set up a barricade across one of the bridges. This was back when there was still the 40 mile long Russian convoy. Mm -hmm. And so it was the bridge they would have had to cross at least in my dream uh, to get into Kyiv. But instead of just any barricade, it was a table that stretched the whole width of the bridge. And then they shackled themselves so that they couldn't be removed from it. And on the table was a banner that said, we refuse to be enemies. And they had food and water for the Russian soldiers. Um, and, and actually, in my dream, the the scene played out in two different ways. Uh, the first, you know, the Russian tanks come and they see them and they just bulldoze right over them. But there are some grandmothers and grandfathers behind them that had a second table set up and they finally stopped. Uh, but in, in the other scenario, they stopped, they got out and they talked and, and these church leaders just kept pleading, you know, you're not our enemies, uh, just go home. Uh, we refuse to be enemies
0: your dream should be bought by Netflix and on the air next week. That <laughs> That's powerful. That's powerful stuff. And, and, you know, if anyone is a student of history, too, on the subject of peace and the absence of it, uh, it's uh, it's interesting because as you go back through societies and cultures, uh, it always seems to be one culture infringing on the freedom of another, and the results are death and destruction. But as a child of the 60s, I keep looking back on that period of time with (laughs) peace and love and flower power and a whole bunch of young people uh, gathering together in uh, different parts of the world, not just the United States, not just the West, but gathering together, and we still recall that picture of the young woman putting the flower in the muzzle of that that military person's rifle, uh, historic, almost as historic as the man in Korea, or in China, standing in front of the tank. What happened to flower power that seemed to be such a force in the 60s? Was it just not real? Hmm. No.
1: um, You know, I think those who often wage peace in the way of Jesus are often on the margins of society and their stories often don't get told. So you hear about the Crusades, but you don't hear the stories of like St. Francis marching to where the battle was raging and pleading with the Christians to stop slaughtering Muslims. And when they refused, going unarmed to the other side and spending a couple of weeks speaking with the Sultan there about the peace teachings of Jesus. And in fact, that sultan is said to have said, if all Christians were like this one, there would be no fighting among us. You know, we we don't hear stories like that. But it still happens.
0: And perhaps one can say, and there are those who are saying now in our audience, yes, it happens, but not often enough. Is there any culture that you've studied, Jason, that has been for an impressive period of time uh, free of violence and an example of long-term peace? Hmm.
1: You know, I I wouldn't consider myself a historian, and so that's probably not my area of expertise. I I can give one example that I give from the book of how... Sorry, go ahead, Pat
0: no i said that's good one example okay. is better than most that we have so
1: you know at the end of uh, of the book fight like jesus I, I i basically say okay now we know the things that make for peace now we know how jesus makes peace and and the real question that remains is what will we do with this knowledge and so i give i give three historical examples and one of them is of bishop Kirill. Uh, he was a bishop in the Bulgarian Orthodox Church during World War II. And I believe, you know, his life is a beautiful example of modeling the things that make for peace. And so uh, his government actually allied with the Nazis and agreed to deport every Bulgarian Jew. And when Kirill learned about this, he plotted a courageous act of civil disobedience Uh, When the first 1500 Jews were loaded into boxcars to be sent to the Driblinka extermination camp, Bishop Kirill and his whole congregation, they, they marched unarmed to the train. And once there, Kirill, who was a very tall man, he pushed his way through the soldiers and he quoted from the book of Ruth. He said, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. And then he opened up one of the boxcar doors and tried to join those Jews being deported, but the soldiers pulled him out. They refused to let him do that. So then Kirill and his congregation, they laid down on the tracks, on the train tracks, and refused to move. And this act It stirred the conscience of a nation, and in part because of it, not a single Jew was deported from Bulgaria Mm. during World War II.
0: Mm. I love that story. And by the way, uh, there are a number of them in the book called Fight Like Jesus by Jason Porterfield. An intriguing title because i don't think that the vast majority of people or the vast majority of christians think of jesus as a fighter why do you great question yeah you know so my
1: theology would be that uh, uh, kind of anabaptist theology and and in anabaptist history there's a debate uh, so they they are often committed to nonviolence um but there's, there was a debate that's been going on for centuries of what does that pacifism look like? Is it passive? Do we do nothing and kind of retreat from society? Or is it an active, nonviolent waging of peace, this contending, this fighting for peace in a ways that refuse to use violence? And I can understand that debate when you look, for example, at Jesus' peace teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, love your enemies, turn the other cheek. There, there's the verse, do not resist evil, although I think the, the better translation of the Greek is do not violently resist an evil person. You know, Jesus resisted evil with every fiber of his being. Uh, but when you look at, at those verses, let me maybe situate it back in, in, in the downtown east side. So there, I really struggled to know how to apply Jesus's peace teaching. You know how do I love my enemies and my neighbor when my enemies are currently oppressing my neighbor? What do you do? And the reason I was so passionate about writing this book and is because I've come to see that if you want to learn how Jesus makes peace, there's no better place to look than Holy Week. And so I'm inviting readers: come learn from the greatest peacemakers' greatest week. And the great thing about Holy Week is that it is the main stage on which we get to see Jesus put all of his previous peace teaching into action. So formerly abstract principles, you know, uh, like uh, uh, love your enemies, they become grounded in concrete examples. And so when you look at how Jesus waged peace throughout Holy Week, I think it settles that debate. It is uh, Jesus's approach to peacemaking, is it passive? it's really hard to argue that when you look at uh, his actions throughout Holy Week. And and so this book, I go day by day, Palm Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, even silent Saturday, and then resurrection Sunday.
0: Around the world, Jesus is known by Christians and non-Christians alike as the Prince of Peace. It's one of the most common titles he's given yet our planet has never known total peace. Does that mean Jesus was a failure?
1: No, um, but I do believe Jesus is still crying. And I do think tears are still streaming down his face. And I think he's still pleading, if only you knew the things that make for peace, if only you'd embrace, embrace my approach to peacemaking.
0: We were we were uh, attracted to uh, the the book primarily initially because of the title "Fight Like Jesus," and as you've said, pacifists are often thought of as being that wussy guy who gives up immediately when it comes to any kind of a conflict. Uh, I don't think I before your book that I had ever thought of Jesus. As a fighter, Uh, I've always thought of him as someone who, uh, through parables, through teaching and through example, uh, was uh, was a person that people simply wanted to identify with. And yet you still identify with him as a fighter. I'd like you to pursue that just a little further if you will, Jason Porterfield.
1: Sure, great question. Well, maybe I can walk through a couple of the days' events in in brief. So Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. What what is the, what are the crowds doing? It says it says there's shouting Hosanna. Which Hosanna? You know, I I always thought it was a synonym of like Hallelujah. You know, but. Hosanna comes from the Aramaic word hoshiana, which means liberate us now, uh, deliver us, we plead. It's, it's a, a cry for help. And then they, it says that they, they uh, repeat a line from Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then they add a few words not contained in the psalm, the king of Israel some of them lay their coats on the ground, which is how kings were coronated. You see that uh, when uh, Jehu, for example, was crowned king in the Old Testament. And then they wave palm branches. And I always thought palm branches were like the ancient equivalent of those giant foam hands you see at sporting events. You know, mm-hmm. like waving them meant, uh, you're awesome, Jesus. I, I'm your number <laughs> one fan. But they actually, palm branches were an important historical symbol for the Jewish people about 200 years before, almost exactly 200 years before uh, the Seleucid empire had ransacked Jerusalem, slaughtered an unclean pig in the temple and sprinkled its blood throughout the temple. Uh, And then the king ordered that all the surrounding towns of Judah offer sacrifices to his gods. And he sent inspectors to make sure this was carried out, this decree. Well, one of his inspectors went into the little town of Modin and one of the Jewish priests agreed to offer that sacrifice. But an elderly Jewish priest there, uh, he lunged forward, stabbed the apostate to death, killed the inspector, tore down the altar, and then fled. And soon after, his health had deteriorated, and he calls his five sons around him, and he says on his deathbed, his dying words, avenge the wrong done to your people, pay back the Gentiles in full. And his middle son, Judas, uh, takes up that rally cry. And he leads a, a pretty successful revolt that gains success. And so they actually recapture part of Jerusalem. And uh, he's so fierce in battle that they give him the, the nickname Maccabeus, which means the hammer. And uh, when they get reclaim Jerusalem, they start minting their own coins. And all the, on the coins, they put a, ba- a palm branch. And they encircle it with the battle cry for the redemption of Zion. And in fact, any other time in the next few centuries when the, the people of Israel start to gain uh, uh, liberation and gain freedom where they think they will be. Uh, so like in the Roman wars in 66 to 70 and in 135 AD, they start minting their own coins again. And again, they put the palm branch on. So it's, it's, the palm branch functions more like a, a separatist movement's flag. You know, and waving them at Jesus meant we want you to be our liberator. But what does Jesus do? He rides on a donkey, not a war horse, which would have been expected, but a donkey. And John tells us he did this to fulfill Zechariah's vision in in Zechariah chapter 9, where uh, he comes as a peaceable king, we read in Zechariah, who's going to remove the weapons of war from his own people and speak peace to all nations. And and even more than that, Jesus enters on the 10th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. It's the day when all the Passover pilgrims select their lamb. The lambs were supplied from Bethlehem, brought to Jerusalem, and they entered through a gate called the Sheep Gate. Well, Jesus' route uh, into Jerusalem as well, after it crossed the Kidron Valley, uh, lines up with the route that the sheep took, and he very likely entered through the same gate, the sheep gate. So in other words, Jesus does not come like Judas Maccabeus. That's the hammer of God. He comes as the lamb of God. Um, but on Monday, we see, you know, Gandhi spoke of Jesus as the most active resistor of injustice in human history. And we see that in Monday with the temple cleansing. He had sunday night he assesses the scene it says he looks around the temple goes back to bethany for the night he comes back the next day and instead of just uh snapping and 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 kind of going crazy or like i say in the joke in the book you know having one massive temple tantrum his his actions are, are likely calculated and planned he had all night to devise a plan and so it says he constructed something like a whip out of cords, or it'd be like a wicker material today. And he likely made this from the animal bedding. That's kind of the leading theory among scholars. And um, and so John, so in the book, I look at the Greek, and it's actually quite telling when he says he drove out from the temple all, and then it uses this little Greek phrase, to the sheep, kai the cattle. And uh, that phrase is used 90 times in the New Testament. And every time it's used to tell us what the noun it's modifying consists of. Uh, so in other words, what does the all consist of? It consists of the sheep and the cattle. Um, and of course, you know, that, that kills two birds with one stone, figuratively speaking, of course, you know, by, by driving the the animals out, the animal sellers are going to hightail it after their, their livelihood, their source of income. Um, but, you know, we often, so we often use that event to justify violence. We say, oh, Jesus used a whip, and a whip is a weapon, and so that gives us permission to use any whip, even ones that are infinitely more uh, indiscriminate. And we, But we also strip Jesus's actions from the reason he gives for what upset him, and thus we can act violently in any situation. Uh, but Jesus goes on, like all good prophets, to explain the reason for his prophetic act. And so he quotes from Isaiah and Jeremiah, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And uh, I could go in into the details of that, but you know, uh, in this cleansing temple scene, we see Jesus quite actively addressing the injustice, this uh, commercializing of the temple. Uh, we have historical accounts that show uh, the sale of of doves, for example, there was price gouging because the animal sellers with, you know, people had to buy this commodity from them. And in fact, the money changers, just the surcharge alone that they added to convert uh, people's money into the required currency, just that surcharge alone, which would be like uh, the processing fee, you know, uh, on PayPal today, That brought in enough prophets to line the entire holy of holies with gold plating Mm. and so jesus you know temporarily decommercializes the temple with this act and then it says that the blind and lame are welcomed in to this court of the gentiles where the the gentiles have been corralled within this court that wasn't part of the temple's original blueprint but they come in and jesus heals them and their inclusion in the temple is just as much of a miracle as their physical healing. We also read that children could be heard singing and praising Jesus, and their inclusion in the temple is also a beautiful miracle. So, you know, Monday is just one example of how Jesus contended for peace. And I hope it's a good example of how he he did this actively uh, contending, this waging.
0: Our conversation on The God Show is with Jason Porterfield this week. And uh, he describes in his book, Fight Like Jesus, how Jesus waged peace throughout Holy Week. Well, certainly that's, that's topical now. But with Jesus as a peacemaker, and Gandhi, and Martin Luther King, I'm troubled to come up with another name. Who now follows in that list of peacemaking giants? Yeah, great question. You know, if I can
1: bend that question just a tad, there is a place, I believe, for, for spiritual heroes that inspire us in our faith, these individuals that model the peacemaking ways of Jesus well. But like I talk about it in my Thursday chapter, I think we also need to have communities of Christians that we can look to that collectively together have embodied the peacemaking way of Jesus. Um, and there's certainly groups out there, you know, from Catholic workers to more Anabaptist tradition like the Bruderhof today, a, a group that uh, in Germany uh, after right after World War I were pacifists and uh, were one of the only Christian groups Uh, to refuse to say, hail Hitler, or to engage in the propaganda in classrooms. And so they were kicked out of Germany and eventually kicked out of England because of their German members and had to live in the jungles of Paraguay for a long time. Um, But they're an active example of embodying this peacemaking ethic of Jesus, I think is a good example of a community collectively doing it. And like I say in my Thursday chapter, the great thing about community is, you know, on our own, we can talk about the love of Jesus and others can listen. And at best they can say, okay, now I've heard about the love of Jesus. When you have two people committed to loving as Jesus has loved them, two people committed to modeling the peacemaking ways of Jesus, then they can demonstrate that. And others can observe and say, now I don't just hear about God's love. I see God's love in action. But the beautiful thing, the miraculous thing about community, once you have at least three people it creates a space into which others can enter and actually experience God's love, experience the peace of Christ. And, and that was my experience in, in Vancouver. You know, I didn't move there uh, and, and minister on my own, but on my own, I did try to be a good neighbor. So you know, I'd probably, probably average an hour or two most days walking the streets, uh, prayerfully striking up conversation with my homeless neighbors. I'd volunteer at a soup kitchen, Serving food, but afterwards just sit down and share a meal with them. Uh, you know, I was always looking for an excuse to to treat a neighbor and, and myself to a nice cup of coffee at one of the local cafes. But if I'm honest, I saw very little fruit, very little transformation in my personal efforts to be a peacemaker. But like I said, i was I was part of a community. And, you know, my friend Craig and I, we we spent a week voluntarily homeless early on in the downtown east side to try to gauge and understand what our neighbors were going through. And we left that week realizing our neighbors were not starving for food. You could get free food 23 times a day in the downtown east side. What they were starving for was friendship. Loneliness was pervasive in that neighborhood. And so our main form of ministry became hospitality. So Five nights a week, we'd open up our house and our neighbors would join us. We'd cook together, we'd eat together, we'd clean the dishes together. We'd, we'd uh, you know, laugh together, cry together. We'd uh, pull out the guitar and sing an eclectic mix of ACDC and Amazing Grace, you know? And, and in that community, as a community, we saw so many lives transformed. Uh, neighbors giving their lives to Christ. Others became beautiful members of our community. Uh, and joined us. One gentleman, while still in rehab, I uh, heard my friend Craig uh, preach at a church. He was the guest preacher that Sunday, talk about his ministry living in the slums of Cambodia. And afterwards, this gentleman named Kevin came up to him and and said, uh, God's calling me to be a missionary in Cambodia. Now, if he had said that to me, you know, I probably would have been like, why don't you get out of rehab first, mate? You know, and then then we can talk. <laughs> but, but Craig said, okay, I'll start coming down and I'll start teaching you the Khmer language. And that's what he did. And Kevin joined our community, became a beautiful member of our community. was known as the crying, the weeping preacher uh, because he would just be moved to tears talking about what Christ was doing in his life. And for the last 12 years, uh, he's been a missionary uh, in the slums of Phnom Penh.
0: Mm -hmm. You quote Desmond Tutu saying, there is no future without forgiveness. Do you really expect the families of Ukraine to be able to forgive, at least in their lifetimes or the lifetimes of their children.
1: You know, Pat, I'm pretty mindful of the fact that I'm sitting quite comfortably, uh, you know, in my home, having this conversation, and so I'm hesitant to you know, in no way do I want to say, well, if I was there and I was in their situation, I'd do blank. You know, Mm -hmm. it's why I refer to myself as an aspiring peacemaker. (laughs) I hope I will respond in the way of Jesus uh, when big major conflicts occur. But how can I say for sure? Um, But I would say, you know, I, I do believe Desmond Tutu was right. And there was much injustice that he was speaking when he gave that comment, uh, speaking into the situation in South Africa. Uh, and like I say of Jesus, you know, his, his first words on the cross, when we drive nails into his wrists and feet, you know, if it was me, I, I would have cried out in agony. I would have cursed my executioners or I would have been pleading my innocence, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus's first words are father forgive them for they know not what they do. So we forgive because it's what Christ has done for us. And and we forgive because we realize, you know, at times people commit evil out of ignorance. And I think that's true of some of the Russian soldiers. They've Mm. been duped into believing that they are denazifying Ukraine. But ultimately we forgive because that's what God and Christ has done for us. And and like you said, you know, forgiveness has an uncanny ability uh, to bring about a future when none seemed possible. And so it, it may not be what, it's not what the Russian troops deserve to be forgiven, but as Christians were called to live by a spirit of mercy. Um, and so I do believe ultimately, and I think the history of some of those very entrenched conflicts around the world show that ultimately there is no future without forgiveness, as hard as that may be.
0: Lest we be accused of attempting to understand other cultures and their histories and other nations and other governments. I wonder, Jason, how you feel about how we in the United States have embraced an approach to peacemaking. Has it been the wrong approach? Uh, is is the, the standard of uh, that peaceful nation Uh, That has so many things in its favor, so many things going for it, uh, still involved with sending troops abroad. Have we embraced the wrong approach to peacemaking?
1: Good question. I think anytime we pick up the sword and use it to try to bring about peace, yes, that is the case. Um, you know, Matthew Bates in his book Kingdom Allegiance, he does a, a great job pointing out that the Greek word we always translate as faith, it's the word pistis in Greek. And the word pistis has a much broader range of meaning than our word faith. Yes, it can mean trust or belief or faith. It can mean trustworthy or faithful. So so when Paul speaks of the faith of the pistis of Christ, is he saying uh, putting our faith in Christ, or is he saying because of the faithfulness of Christ? That's a big debate among scholars, but it's also used to speak of fidelity or loyalty to a ruler or a leader. And in fact, um, when it's used to speak of fidelity or loyalty to a ruler, perhaps the best word in English is allegiance. And that's what the early Christians taught. You know, They said, our allegiance is to King Jesus. And I think of Bonhoeffer's famous line, you know, our hearts have room for only one all-encompassing allegiance. So in the book, I point out, you know, Jesus, He could have talked to so Marcus Borg and John Dominic Cross, and they, they point this out, hmm. that Jesus could have talked about the people of God, the community of God, the family of God, but instead he chose a politically loaded slogan, the kingdom of God. And I think as Christians, we are called to give our allegiance to Jesus. And like the early church said, we must obey God rather than man. And so my big concern is to see Christians embrace the peacemaking way of Jesus and model that in the world. But, you know, the the danger, I think, for people in every country is to view their country as being unable to ever do wrong and always assuming those that we deem enemies can do no right. Um, and so, you know, I, I tell a story um, in Wednesday's chapter about my friend Craig, who I've just talked about, his wife, Nay, she um, grew up in Cambodia. And, you know, back uh, during the Vietnam War, Nixon and Kissinger from the halls of power in Washington, D.C., they thought, okay, we can win the war in Vietnam and bring peace to the area if we bomb Vietnamese troops hiding out in neighboring, neutral Cambodia. And so over four years, they bombed 113,000 Cambodian sites which a bl- with a blast force, according to uh, the US government's own records, which the UN says it's drastically underestimated, but according to the lowest numbers given, it was a blast force equal to the nuclear bombs we dropped on Japan 14 times over. And because of that, th- there's uh, internal memos that show that a man named Pol Pot used our bombings to gain recruits for his Khmer rouge, and a couple years later, he overtook the capital city and, and began a genocide. Uh, he spoke of uh, uh, returning the country to, to year zero and making an agrarian society. And my friend Nay, her dad was killed uh, in that genocide, and her mom and aunt were forced to work in the rice fields, while she and her uh, young brother, they were both under the age of five, had to fend for themselves, and as malnutrition set in, her mom decided to make a daring escape, and so they would travel at night and then uh, hide out in the jungle during the day, and then eventually they made it out of the country into a refugee camp and ultimately to New Zealand. But fast forward, and as adults, she and then her husband Craig felt called to move back. Uh, to the slums of Cambodia. And they started a ministry called Alongsiders, that instead of taking orphans out of their communities and putting them into a Western orphanage, they found ways to help Cambodians care for their own orphans. And a couple years back, they bought some land on the coast in Cambodia to start what they call Shalom Valley, this camp for Alongsider children. And when they got the land, there were some craters there from the bombs that we dropped from our B-52 warplanes. And they had an option; they could fill those craters in and hide these wounds from the past, but instead, they chose to leave those craters there. And now, week after week, campers come and they sit around the edge of that bomb crater and they discuss the peace teachings of Jesus. Mm. And you know, from from the around the edge of this this hollowed and now hallowed ground, uh, campers often remark that it's easy to see why Jesus said violence was never permissible
0: you're a remarkable storyteller jason porterfield but of course i knew that because i got a chance to read the book fight like jesus we have uh about two minutes left in this broadcast that i won't i won't forget for a long time because uh, you've talked about that which is uh probably most sought after and i smile When you mentioned John uh, Dominic Crossan, one of our former guests uh, here uh, on The God Show, Um, with only a very short period of time, I wonder if in a minute and a half you can tell me what your personal feelings are about the question Will there always be bullies in our lives?
1: It's a question I haven't thought about before, Pat, but it's a good one. Um, well, my experience is yes. <laughs> yes, there, there always will be bullies in our lives. But, you know, like I say in, in the book, I, I think the book helps us see that to be a peacemaker in the way of Jesus is to not be a doormat. That just lets people walk all over us, you know. Um, and so I think like in Vancouver, for example, we tried to be a welcoming place for all. But in order to do that, we also had to be a safe place, and that took priority. And so sometimes when homeless neighbors would come join us and they would get a little violent or aggressive, we'd have to take them out of the house and say, sorry, mate, you won't be able to come around for a while. We'll still meet up, maybe have coffee uh, individually with you, but this place needs to be a safe place. Place, um, so um, that's that's what I love about uh, Holy Week is that we get to see all the, how Jesus applied all these principles. So he says, "Father, forgive them" on the cross, but forgiveness was never a cop out for letting injustice continue unabated. So we see Jesus defending an unnamed woman when his disciples berate her on Wednesday. We see Jesus's actions, like I already talked about, on Monday.
0: And the subtitle, uh, the subtitle of your book, is "How Jesus Waged Peace Throughout Holy Week." The title is Fight Like Jesus. The author is Jason Porterfield. This is The God Show, and I'm Pat McMahon.